service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. You're the smartest man I ever see. Come right in. You're welcome to anything in the house. Be you hungry? Well, yes. I was just out trying to scare up an appetite for breakfast. Well, come right in, and we'll see if we can scare up a breakfast for your appetite. <laughs> yes, and I know I'll enjoy it. The stories about John Holmes are insane. He appeared in over 2,000 adult films with his famously freakish large unit that measured over a foot in length. At the height of his fame, he raked in three grand a day, and by his own count, he reportedly slept with over 14,000 women. And in times of desperation, he ran drugs for the Wonderland Gang, a motley crew of junkies and cons who stole from other junkies and cons in Los Angeles in order to support their own habits. By the early 1980s, his freebase habit had become so devastating that he could no longer get hard. And John Holmes wanted to get hard again. Through it all, John Holmes made great films? I don't know. I've never seen a John Holmes movie, so I can't really say. But the clip I played for you at the top of the show, that was definitely not from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Steve Porter and Ernest Hare in a 1929 vaudeville production of the Arkansas Traveler. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to sample Richard Lester's Superman 2. And why would I play you that specific slice of Daily Planet celluloid cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 1st, 1981. And that was the day that the Wonderland gang were bludgeoned to death inside their house in Los Angeles. A murder so gruesome that investigators had to literally scrape the bodies of the victims off the walls and the floors. On this episode, freakishly large units freebasing a brutal murder scene in John Holmes. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season one, Hollywoodland. June 29, 1981, a ranch-style house in Studio City, California, just over the hill from Hollywood, 8.30 a.m. The guy, wearing nothing but comfy sweats, was bigger than the smash-and-grab men had expected. Six feet four, 300 pounds, easy. But if his height and weight were a clear advantage over the would-be thieves' normal sizes, the fact that he was holding a breakfast tray in his hands put him at a serious disadvantage. Because the smash-and-grab guys, the three guys who had slipped into the house through a sliding glass door that had been left ajar and then made their way swiftly down the hallway and into the living room, those guys were strapped. 357 Magnums in one hand, bogus police badges in the other. They yelled some bogus shit about being the fuzz, which they obviously weren't. 
One look at their frazzled hair, bloodshot eyes, and track-marked arms was a dead giveaway that they were desperate junkies who had just woken up from their latest nod-off. Comfy Sweats dropped the breakfast tray and shot a glance towards his bedroom where he had left his 9mm. Then he looked over at the other man in the living room with him, his boss, the thin one with the curly hair wearing nothing but blue underwear. Two of the smash and grab men were already on the blue undies dude, and they had one of the magnums to his temple. Where are the drugs? They were shouting, take us to the drugs. And the third smash and grab guy was on comfy sweats, told him to put his hands behind his back, fumbling with a pair of handcuffs, but his piece kept getting in the way. Comfy sweats had thick wrists, sweaty. The first smash and grab guy went over to help the third with the handcuffs and accidentally bumped into the hand holding the gun. The gun went off. The bullet grazed Comfy Sweat's back and he began to bleed. The sound of the gunshot blew some of the all-nighter freebase sesh from Blue Undy's brain. He was quickly realizing that this wasn't a joke. These junkies were actually going to rob him. Do you know who I am? Blue Undies yelled, his face getting hot and his temper getting marching orders from an ulcer in his stomach. Yeah, of course they did. The smash and grab thieves knew exactly who Blue Undies was. Adele Garib Nasrallah, AKA Eddie Nash, AKA one of the most hard-boiled, unfuckwithable fuckers in this dirty, rotten fuckhole of a city, Los Angeles, where 52-year-old Eddie Nash was living his version of the American dream. He came to LA from Palestine in the 1950s with nothing but a couple of bucks and soon turned those couple of bucks into a hot dog stand on Hollywood Boulevard. Before long, he parlayed the hot dog stand into a resume of nightclubs on the strip. Rock clubs, gay clubs, black clubs, strip clubs, discos, places like the Starwood, the Kit Kat Club, the Seven Seas, Alibaba's, the Paradise Ballroom, sold out in the Odyssey. Places to see, places to be seen, to dance, to grind, pop some lewds, let your freak flag fly, get some strange. By the end of the 70s, Nash had more than 30 liquor licenses on the books and was running drugs up and down the strip. Nash was king of Hollywood nightlife and godfather of Hollywood's underbelly. By 1981, he was worth over 30 million. And he had some serious shit locked inside a safe in his house on Donna Lola Place in the San Fernando Valley, Studio City. So yeah, the smash and grab guy with the gun knew all about Eddie Nash. He just didn't give a fuck. He removed the barrel of the 357 from Nash's temple and forced it inside Nash's mouth. He repeated the order, bring them to the fucking safe now, motherfucker. The man with the gun was just as hard-boiled as Eddie Nash. He just didn't have a $30 million portfolio to back it up. He was Ron Lanius, de facto leader of the so-called Wonderland Gang, a group of low-level drug dealers who operated out of a house on Wonderland Avenue in the Laurel Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles. The Wonderland Gang's MO was to steal from other dealers and gangs, hence the bogus police badges and then sell the drugs themselves, thus ensuring a steady flow of cash, smack, and blow, while also keeping the product out of the hands of their competitors. Ron was probably the coldest of the bunch, a Vietnam vet who was dishonorably discharged from the US Army when he came back from the war with dope smuggled in the bodies of dead GIs. He was currently a person of interest in at least a dozen, if not two dozen, open homicides in LA. Ron was the kind of guy who thought a gat in the hand meant the world by the tail. Ron lived in the Wonderland house with Joy Audrey Miller, a heroin addict who had separated from her wealthy husband in Beverly Hills 
along with her boyfriend, Billy DeVero, who couldn't hold down a regular job due to his drug use. Ron and Billy were the two pulling off this heist to end all heists, along with the two other Wonderland regulars, Tracy McCourt, who was sitting behind the wheel of the getaway car outside, and David Lind, the one who accidentally shot the big guy in the comfy sweats. That guy was Eddie Nash's bodyguard, Gregory DeWitt Dials. The last time someone had tried to fuck over Eddie Nash, Dials chased the offending party from the Odyssey nightclub in broad daylight, on foot, across six lanes of traffic, and put every last bullet from his 38 into the deadbeat's hoopty. That was the guy that the Wonderland gang now had in handcuffs, bleeding from his back, laying on his stomach on the floor. Nash took Ron and Billy to his safe and opened it. And they took it all. Ziploc bags of cocaine, roughly eight pounds worth, 5,000 quaaludes, a kilo of heroin, a briefcase filled with over 100 grand in cash, and shiny jewelry to boot. It was an epic score, ridiculously, laughably epic. The gag made a clean exit out to the car, where Wheelman McCourt was waiting, and they headed back to Wonderland with the spoils. The one thing that made this job different from any of the others was that Eddie Nash wasn't the gang's typical mark. He wasn't lower on the underworld totem pole. In fact, not only was he higher, he probably paid for the totem pole and instructed where it should be built in the first place. Eddie Nash stood in his blue undies, still tasting the stainless steel from the magnum that had been down his throat, looking at the sliding glass door that the thieves had used to come and go from his house. No one put a gun in Eddie Nash's mouth and lived to tell about it. He thought about the last person to visit his house the night before, just hours before those junkie hacks burst in with their big guns and their bogus police badges. Eddie Nash knew exactly who set him up. He knew exactly who led those junkies to his doorstep, to a sliding glass door that was left open on purpose, for the sole purpose to fuck him over. It was the guy they called Wad, Johnny Wad, Big Bad John, the hard-boiled private dick with the grade A meat. But Nash knew him by his real name, the biggest, hardest name in adult entertainment, John Holmes. In 1981, John Holmes, the poster boy for pornographic cinema in the 1970s, no longer saw his name in big black letters on the marquee of the Pussycat Theater. In fact, John Holmes' name was Mud. Why? Because of two problems. First problem was that he was in serious debt. He was in deep. He owed money to the Wonderland gang. He worked as their errand boy running drugs around town, but Seeing as he was a strung-out junkie himself, he couldn't help but sample the merchandise. Pretty soon, he had sampled thousands of dollars worth, so the gang turned on him. They wouldn't let him visit their house anymore, and they told him if he didn't get them their money too sweet, they'd go one step further. They would kill him. And seeing that his name wasn't on the pussycat marquee no more, well, he had zero prospects to keep his pockets lined and his freebase pipe hot. He was straight fucked and not in a sexy porn scene kind of way. The reason his name wasn't on the marquee anymore was on account of the second problem. The second problem was that he couldn't get hard anymore. 
John Holmes, owner of the biggest and hardest dick in Hollywood, had gone soft. Then there was a time when he balled all day. He was a fucking machine and a fucking machine. He fucked all day long with that legendary dick of his on the set of whatever movie he was shooting. True blue skin flicks like the Jade Pussycat or Liquid Lips or Flesh of the Lotus. And then he turned tricks offset on his own time. He did it in bedrooms and bathrooms and planes and helicopters, on rooftops, on beaches, on kitchen counters. And there wasn't a moment, day or night, that he wasn't spanking, spunking, smashing, or banging. And John Holmes was just a country boy from Ohio, lanky and mustached and kind of goofy looking, but he had one particular piece of impressive equipment, an unbelievably large penis. Depending on who you ask, it measured between 12 and 16 inches long. Some say it was as thick as an adult man's wrist. It was an appendage so impressive and unbelievable that a porn director created a character and wrote an entire movie on the spot when John dropped trout. Imagine, if you will, a cock that's not just impressive, it's downright inspiring. And the character's name was Johnny Watt, and that became John Holmes's big screen persona, a street tough detective who always got his man. He busted up criminal kingpins like this one guy they called Ringo. Snub-nosed hand cannon at his side, Johnny Wad roughed up Ringo's lackeys, and then when he finally tracked down his nemesis, he got to play the hard-boiled street-tough badass. The guy who said things like, there's only one thing I want to know from you, Ringo, and if you don't tell me, I'll take your fucking head off. And when Johnny Wad wasn't busy getting his man, he was busy getting busy. Busy screwing every woman that crossed his path. John Holmes was the first bona fide movie star of the burgeoning porn industry in the early 70s, arriving around the same time as Deep Throat, a controversial and incredibly popular film that helped usher porn from stag party clips and private booth loops to an actual cinematic industry. It was an industry that was so burgeoning that it was still a felony to produce pornographic materials when Holmes started his long career, forgive me. Early on, John was caught up in a bust on a movie set. They charged him with pimping and pandering, and they let him off easy, partly because the LAPD vice squad convinced him to be their Johnny on the spot. He'd prepared for that role. He was Johnny Watt, after all. In his films, he wasn't always Johnny Watt, though, but over the course of his career, John reportedly appeared in over 2,200 movies and claimed to have slept with 14,000 women. At the height of his career, he was pulling in three grand a day, his hard-boiled private dick persona, as well as his not-so-private actual hard dick, became the stuff of legend, even mythology. Agents lined up to find him work. His phone rang off the hook. Fans wrote asking for locks of his pubic hair. Women asked if he would take their daughter's virginity. But not everyone was impressed. John's wife, Sharon, whom John had married when he was just 21, never understood why he quit his job driving a forklift at a meatpacking plant so that he could go... Okay, I'm not gonna go for the cheap me packing double entendre here, but believe me, it's so hard not to. Shit, I just said hard, all right, forget it. I digress. Anyway, John's wife could probably understand the career move into porn, but she didn't like it. It was around that same time that John acquired a taste first for scotch, then for pot, and then for cocaine. Coke was an occupational hazard for just about everyone in the porn industry. John became such a discerning freebaser that he carried around a suitcase filled entirely with pipes, torches, and other paraphernalia. His habit was running in 1,500 a day. He lit up a pipe every 15 minutes. And the more drugs he did, the more unreliable he got. And the more violent and unpredictable he got. And the softer he got. Soon, he couldn't get it up anymore. 
and the industry that once made him famous had turned his blue balls black. That was the second problem, which was directly related to the first problem, the debt he owed to the Wonderland gang. He needed to find cash to pay the gang back, and fast. January, 1981, Marina Del Rey, 2 a.m. John Holmes sat in his wife's Chevy Malibu in the parking lot of an apartment complex killing time. He was high. He watched an LAPD patrol car slink by. Its parking lights on, it disappeared down the street. Probably trolling for someone in particular, John thought. He looked up at the apartment building and could see silhouettes against the window blinds. Shit, he needed to fucking focus and get some fat stacks. The Wonderland gang's Ron Lanius was not one to mess around with. That psycho would most likely fuck Holmes with the cold barrel of his magnum before he blasted him away with it. He opened up the door of the Chevy Malibu and stepped outside. It was quiet, and the oceanside air was cold, and the jean jacket he was wearing only did so much to keep him warm. He started walking alongside the cars parked in the lot, trying door handles, peeking inside windows. And then he saw it. Fucking jackpot. Someone had left a computer in the back seat of their Volvo sedan. Surely that thing would command a handful of dough. John tried the door and it was unlocked. He took another glance around the parking lot. Still quiet, still nothing. He picked up the computer from the back seat. It was heavy as shit. It was a 1981 computer, after all. He stumbled backwards, steadied himself with his right leg, and kicked the door closed with his left leg. He took a few eager steps back to the Malibu when he heard something. He stood still and listened. Rubber on gravel, steady rolling. A car was creeping. He started to walk faster now, his pace increasing with his pulse quickening. He was trying to balance the computer in one arm so that he could open the door with the other. When the police car's parking lights went full high beam, the patrol car was back. John was busted. Whether it was computers in cars, jewelry in friends' houses, or unattended suitcases at the LAX baggage claim, John's attempts at robbery were weak sauce. He even tried turning tricks at the Hollywood nightclubs that Eddie Nash owned. Men, women, didn't matter as long as they gave him some dollar bills for checking out his package, but few were interested in a flaccid has-been. Fortuitously, John's legend preceded him. And so, when Eddie Nash encountered John stalking the floor of his club, the Seven Seas, he didn't know that the porn star had gone soft. Nash was a beaver feature connoisseur, and he was starstruck that Johnny Wad himself was hanging in his club. You like that? He asked John, bobbing his head and yelling to be heard above the din of the Commodore's lady, which was pulsing from the club's sound system. You like that four on the floor beat? Shit, yeah, John liked it. But he liked freebasing cocaine even more. And lucky for him, the only person in LA freebasing more cocaine than John Holmes was Eddie Nash. The unlikely duo began marathon freebase sessions at Nash's home in Studio City over the hill from Hollywood. It was Eddie Nash who bailed John out of jail when he was nicked in Marina Del Rey for jacking the computer from the backseat of the Volvo. Eddie Nash trusted John Holmes, and that gave John Holmes an idea. An idea that would enable him to put away the late night car thefts, put away the dance floor prostituting, put away the teenage girlfriend smackdown, and finally, pay his debts. He could leave the sliding glass door ajar at Eddie Nash's house and give the Wonderland gang the lay of the land. And not only would he pay back his debt, they would all be kings. And best of all, he'd be hard again. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. 
Scott Thorson was getting high with Eddie Nash in the bedroom of Nash's Studio City house when he heard the front door burst open. He exhaled a plume of smoke and looked out into the living room. Nash's bodyguard, Gregory DeWitt Diles, a six foot four, 300 pound guy who just a day earlier withstood a muzzle burn from the gun of the Wonderland gang, lumbered inside. He was dragging John Holmes by his dirty shirt collar. Scott looked down at the gaudy, sparkling rings on his fingers and pretended not to be paying too much attention as Diles tossed John into the house and slammed the door behind him. John fell to the ground on his knees. His face was bleeding. Diles called out for Nash. Scott got a funny feeling and it wasn't from what he'd been smoking all morning. Something bad was about to go down. He suddenly felt like maybe he should make like a tree and split. Scott had been having a conversation with Nash about getting involved with one of his many nightclubs. Scott knew all about Nash's dirty dealings, about how the clubs were really just fronts for money laundering and drug dealing. He knew that at the Starwood alone, the LAPD averaged roughly one drug bust a day. But nevertheless, he wanted a piece of that action. He wanted in on the cut. Partners, club owners, Hollywood gangsters. These were the ideas that seemed fucking brilliant when piles of cocaine were involved. Scott had been a regular at Nash's house ever since his lover, Liberace, had thrown him out on his ass. After years of mink coats, first-class flights, and chauffeuring Mr. Showmanship's Rolls Royce, Scott was rousted by Liberace's management and forcibly tossed from the house. Drugs were to blame, mostly cocaine, which Scott had started taking in order to lose the necessary weight so that he could get the plastic surgery that Liberace wanted him to get. Nash pitied him. Plus, Scott was handy around the house. He kept the place clean and returned for a place to hang. He was good company. Scott liked to get high, and he knew when certain moments called for him to make himself scarce. This was one of those moments. Scott excused himself from the bedroom just as Nash was coming out to the living room. How could you fucking do this to me, Nash was screaming. John Holmes stood up, his hands held up in surrender and defense. Eddie Nash kept screaming. John was a rat. John was a fucking limp dick rat. Dials grabbed John by the arm, not that he was going anywhere, and Nash told Dials to bring John into the bedroom. The three men closed the bedroom door behind them. Scott sat out in the living room and listened through the paper-thin doors. Nash lit into John again. He heard it all. Nash knew that John had left the sliding glass door open so that his junkie friends could get inside. And then John had been spotted the very next day, strutting down the streets of Hollywood like Johnny Watt himself, wearing Eddie fucking Nash's stolen fucking jewelry like it was nothing. Like it didn't matter. But word got back to Nash that John was peacocking with Pilford Bling, and that's when he sent Dials out to pick him up. And now John was going to tell Nash exactly who robbed him. And that's what Nash was saying. And then John was screaming. Scott could imagine that Nash or Dials, or maybe both of them, had a gun pointed at John's head. One of them was inflicting some serious pain. Maybe they were hitting him, or maybe they were slicing him up, cutting the tips of his fingers off. He'd heard the stories. You didn't want to find yourself on the wrong side of Eddie Nash. A regular guest at Nash's house was an Israeli, a guy of great importance that Scott didn't know personally, but everyone whispered that he was the quote-unquote godfather of the Israeli mafia. And there were even more whispers that the two were involved in threatening and extorting local businesses and that they were behind the murder and dismemberment of two Israeli nationals at the Bonaventure Hotel in downtown L.A. John Holmes had found himself on Eddie Nash's wrong side. Scott could imagine that behind the bedroom door, 
John Holmes was no longer playing the role of Johnny Wad. He had flipped roles, and now he was the nemesis, Ringo, and Nash was Johnny Wad. Who fucking robbed me, Ringo? Ringo was whimpering now. He had been so close to pulling this off. If it hadn't been for Johnny Wad fucking it all up. Where do the degenerate thieves live, Ringo? Johnny fucking Wad, he always got his man. Ringo started to stutter under his breath, but there were no words, only the sound of pathetic drivel. You better fucking start talking, Ringo. I swear to fucking God, I'll take your fucking head off. And Ringo had no choice. He'd been made. He should be glad that Johnny Wad hadn't already put a bullet between his eyes. And then the words came softly and slowly. Wonderland Avenue, 8763 Wonderland Avenue. Unlike an actual Johnny Wad movie, the scene didn't magically cut to a sultry bang sesh with a naked co-ed, and there were no X-rated night moves to balance out the fear and violence. There was only more fear and more violence. John begged Nash for his life, had asked him what he could do to make it right. Nash thought for a moment and then told John exactly what he could do. He could go back to the house on Wonderland Avenue and cut out the eyeballs of every fucking person there and then put those eyeballs in fucking Ziploc bags and then bring the eyeballs in the fucking Ziploc bags back to Eddie Nash. That's what he could do. Better yet, Eddie Nash would send a couple of guys over with John. Cutting out eyeballs was a bit outside of John Holmes' wheelhouse. Scott began to tidy up the living room when the three emerged from the bedroom. He knew that Nash didn't give a fuck about the stolen drugs, or the cash, or the jewels. Nash had plenty more where all that came from. And the Wonderland gang had made off with eight pounds of cocaine. Big deal, there was another million dollars worth of the shit hiding in the house that they hadn't found. And money. Money didn't grow on trees, but Eddie Nash grew his own damn money. He would be just fine. It was the principle of the thing. It was about being disrespected, about being taken advantage of, about being made to look like a fool and in his own house by a gang of low-life convicted criminals and dopeheads. And that kind of thing didn't sit well with a man like Eddie Nash. It was nearly 3 a.m. when a couple of Eddie Nash's guys stuffed John Holmes in the backseat of a car and hit the road. Destination, Wonderland Avenue. The Wonderland gang met their inevitable fate in the early hours of Wednesday, July 1st, 1981. That fate came in the form of a couple of unnamed heavies carrying hammers and metal pipes. The unnamed heavies woke the gang up from their deep smack slumber, and they had John Holmes with them. They rang the doorbell at the locked door of 8763 Wonderland Avenue. They let John do the talking, and they were buzzed in and the unnamed heavies tightened their grips on the hammer and pipe. They held the smooth end of the pipe in hand so that the threaded end would inflict maximum damage. They dragged John Holmes in by his shirt collar, always by the shirt collar. In the living room, they found Barbara Butterfly Richardson, a friend of the gang's who was in the wrong fucking place at most certainly the wrong fucking time. And one of the heavies held John against the wall with a gun to his head and made him watch. They brought the hammer and the pipe down on Barbara's head. Blood splattered on the couch and spilled on the carpet. More blood splattered all over the stack of records propped up on the floor. A hanging plant was knocked off its hook and crashed to the floor. In the bedroom, they found Ron Lanius with his wife, Susan. 
One of the heavies held Ron against the wall with a gun to his chest and made him watch. Finally, they brought the hammer and the pipe down on Ron's wife's head a final time, mercifully trying to end her horror. They didn't. She lived through the savage beating. Ron wasn't so lucky. He was next, same fate, piped to the head, again and again until Ron was dead. And the couple's blood was splattered all over the pillow and the bedsheets and completely doused the carpet. In another room, they found Joy Miller and Billy DeVero. They brought the hammer and the pipe down on their heads, too. Billy's head opened up and shot all over the wall and sprayed a TV that was on next to the bed. And they tossed the bloodied hammer onto the corner of the bed and propped Billy up against the wall on the floor. And they left the TV on. They ransacked the place, opened every drawer and overturned every chair, found every last baggie of powder and every last stack of dollar bills. They told John to beat it. Fuck off, Dick Ford. And then they were gone. The scene at 8763 Wonderland Avenue was, in a word, gruesome. When the LAPD arrived on the scene, they had to think back to over a decade in the past, to 1969, and the infamous Tate LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family to find crime scenes that came close to comparable. Inside, they found the bodies. Ron, dead. Billy, dead. Joy, dead. Barbara, dead. Susan, alive, just barely, with brain damage so severe that she could never remember exactly who entered the house or what they did. And John Holmes? John fucked off back home and took a bath to try to wash away the night. He was able to get rid of the blood of the Wonderland gang that had splattered all over his body, but he couldn't wash away the feeling that he was responsible for what happened in that house. The robbery had been his idea in the first place. If he hadn't left the sliding door ajar, maybe four people wouldn't have had to die. In March of 1982, when the police finally arrested someone in connection with the murders, it was John Holmes. They had found one of his palm prints on the headboard of Ron's bed. John's lawyer argued that the palm print was likely there from all the times John had visited the house and not necessarily from the evening in question. John refused to testify. He was eventually found innocent. He was no longer in anyone's debt. He no longer feared for his life. In the eyes of the court, the murders were not his fault. But he had nothing. His wife Sharon wouldn't see him. His lawyer gave him a hundred bucks in pity money and the keys to his VW Beetle. He ditched the freebase and watched his freakish unit get its mojo back, and that famously large dick would ride again. He got in front of the camera and his name once again graced the credits of adult films like Flesh Pond and The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empress. The latter came out in 1987, which was the same year that John, in the midst of a professional and personal rebound, received devastating news. He was suffering from complications related to the AIDS virus. His legs couldn't carry him, his lungs turned on him, his ears bled. John Holmes died the next year on March 13, 1988, at the age of 43. And then, just months later, Eddie Nash and Gregory DeWitt Dials were busted, charged with the so-called four-on-the-floor murders at Wonderland Avenue. And the jury would have convicted them, too, if it wasn't for the one juror that Nash paid off with a $50,000 bribe. The bribe caught up to Nash nine years later in 2000, when he was arrested again for his involvement in the Wonderland murders in particular and for being a deadbeat evader of justice in general. He would serve a whopping one year in federal prison and pay 250 grand. And just like the golden rod of Johnny Wad, 
the tale of the Wonderland murders soon engorged into legend, an infamous legend that was very much real, even if it seemed make-believe. The kind of legend that looms large, so large that it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.